invite you to take a copy of the Scripture someplace and look at the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. If you are using a house Bible, it's page 973. It was sometime around the mid-40s A.D. when Paul, the apostle, confronted Peter, also one of the apostles, about a very serious compromise of the gospel. The immediate issue was that Peter had begun to refuse to eat with uncircumcised Gentiles. But Paul recognized that there was a deeper issue at play, an undermining of the gospel message itself by implying that circumcision and other aspects of the law were the grounds for acceptance with God. This was an undermining of the gospel message that salvation comes only through faith in Christ and not by any good deed or any religious ritual. In A.D. 1521, Martin Luther stood before the famous council at Worms in Germany and his understanding of the gospel had been profoundly shaped by Paul's letter to the Galatians. That led him to confront the medieval Roman Catholic Church and in fact the Pope himself over the gospel. Perhaps in Luther's confrontation with that man who claimed to be the successor of Peter, Luther saw himself in the mantle of the Apostle Paul contending for the truth of the Gospel. The truth that justification before God does not rest on performing certain religious rituals, but is grounded on faith alone in Christ Jesus. And of all of the ideas that have been discussed throughout the history of human civilization, there is no word, there is no idea more worth fighting for and contending for than the truth of the Gospel that saves. Because only the Gospel, the true Gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So we're going to read again about that confrontation that Paul had with Peter all those many years ago, and then particularly to focus on the two verses that follow the paragraph we looked at last time, namely verses 15 and 16. But let's begin our reading up in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2. When Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's not really clear in this chapter where Paul stops recounting his conversation with Peter directly and starts speaking and writing to the Galatians in general. Uh, But I think it's probably likely that he's still speaking to Peter in verses 15 and 16, which are our text, because he speaks of we, we who are Jews by birth, And so, in recounting then that conversation with Peter, that confrontation with Peter all those years ago, Paul is going to do three things in these two verses. One, he appeals to their common understanding of justification. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, is talking about the biblical doctrine of justification. So he, he appeals to Peter about their common understanding of justification. Then he reminds Peter of their common belief that the way of salvation is the same for them as Jews as it is for Gentiles. And then finally, in the very end, he'll just hint, I think, at the reasoning behind that conviction. So in the first place, in our text, we see that Paul begins by appealing to he and Peter's common understanding of justification. You see it in verse 15. He begins by acknowledging of their Jewish heritage, their common Jewish heritage. He says, now we ourselves, Peter, you and I, are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, when we're circumcised from our birth, we had the law, we are part of the people of God, we were separate from all of those sinful nations of the world, this is our common heritage, and yet they both understood this truth. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This, friends, is at the heart of the gospel. And it was a gospel that both Peter and Paul affirmed. He says, we both know this to be true. Even though, of course, Peter was acting, as Paul says, hypocritically. He was acting in a way 
that betrayed what he really believed, what he really stood for, the way he really understood the gospel. Now, in order to understand Peter's compromise, we need to understand the gospel. We need to understand the way that they both understood and articulated the gospel as it is in truth, the only true gospel that that saves anybody, and that is summarized in these words, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That, in a nutshell, was their gospel. Now, in that statement, in that explanation of their message, there are three really significant terms. And each of these terms is disputed, not surprisingly. For Satan's oldest um, uh, plan of attack against God's people is to take false teaching and couch it in Bible terminology. We've seen that already. There are three, again, terms in this uh, description of the gospel that are essential uh, for understanding the apostolic message. And the first is that term justified. We, a person is not justified, he says, by the works of the law. What is justification? What does it mean to be justified? The term is used three times in this one verse, so it's obviously really important. And it is important for your eternal soul that you grapple with what God is doing to justify sinners, what He has done. What is justification then? Well, in the Old Testament, the term, the verb form, was used to describe the verdict that a judge would pronounce in the courtroom. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 1, we read that judges, this is the Lord's commandment for, for Israel, that judges should decide between people acquitting, that's our word justifying, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. So the word comes from that legal context. You see that same legal context in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 8, verse 33, Paul writes rhetorically, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. God declares the verdict of not guilty, so how can any charge in the courtroom stand when the verdict has been pronounced? There will be um, accusations made by the by the enemy against the people of God, and yet none of that will stand. So what I want you to see is, is once again, you have the imagery of the courtroom, right? You have the imagery of the law. Justification is God's legal declaration of a person's innocence, of a person's righteousness. I say that again. Justification is God's legal declaration of a person's innocence of their righteousness. Well, by Luther's time, by the time of Martin Luther, the Catholic Church had become 
intent on preserving a particular view of human autonomy that made it not seem fair that God should justify some people and not justify others without respect, ultimately, to something good within themselves. People should get what they deserve, right? And so, the Bible's teaching on justification then had come to be redefined in the Catholic conception. The Catholic Church spoke about a kind of initial justification that was purely by the grace of God. This was that child's infant baptism that took away the guilt of original sin, sort of put that child in a place of innocence um, with a moral ability like Adam in the garden, and that person, that man could then cooperate or not cooperate with that grace and so merit for himself eternal life. He could even potentially do more good than was necessary in order to merit heaven and eternal life. These were referred to as works of supererogation, extraneous works beyond what was necessary that would be gathered up in a kind of treasury, so to speak, the treasury of the merit of the saints, which could then be drawn upon to help someone to enter heaven more quickly or to escape from purgatory. This human cooperation with grace was what the church had come to call justification. This was not then, in the Catholic conception, God's declaring someone to be righteous so much as it was God's making that person righteous. So justification then could be increased as the person cooperated with grace over the course of his lifetime until the final verdict, which would be given at the last judgment. And those who had done good would enter into heaven, and those who had not done good enough would be consigned to hell or to purgatory. Well, to Luther and to the Reformers, this was an insufficient explanation for the biblical testimony, the testimony of Paul and others. And it was, in fact, a fundamental misunderstanding and undermining of the gospel of grace. And to Luther, it was a great personal torment because the question that looms large over anyone whose understanding of the gospel is shaped in that way, the question that has to be asked is, how much good do I have to do to be good enough? When am I satisfactory to God? I wonder if you've ever thought about that. How good 
do you have to be to be good enough for God? I don't know that there that a lot of people grapple with that. What really is God's standard in order for him to say this person is righteous? I mean, how good do you have to be to be declared righteous by a God who knows everything? A God who knows everything you've ever thought in your secret heart. A God who sees the deeper motivations behind even the good, quote-unquote, good things that you do. Who, if, who could stand before such a God? How good do you have to be? This, I say, was the, the, um, the question that tormented, that troubled Luther, and rightly so, as he had come to, um, as he had been taught the gospel in his, uh, in his church. I want to go, though, before we come back to that, to the second key term in this um, explanation of the gospel. And that's the term works of the law. You see that? A person is not justified. He's not declared righteous. He's not vindicated by the works of the law. Now, Martin Luther and the other reformers protested. They were called Protestants. They protested that the Roman Catholic Church in their effort to preserve a kind of human autonomy had made justification to be dependent on human works. That is, attendance to the sacraments, some of which were good or could be good deeds if done from a heart of faith, and some which were just merely, actually, man-made traditions. But the Catholic Church had made justification dependent on human works. But Paul's gospel and Peter's is that, quote, we are not justified by works of the law. To them, the words of Ephesians from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 just came so powerfully. You, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see the idea that no one boasts? That's the, that's sort of the end, the outcome of all of this manner in which God saves someone. You might even say that's the goal. So Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, that God has saved us not because of works done by, done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing the renewal of the holy spirit whom he poured out on us richly through jesus christ our savior so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life this was the christian gospel 
And Paul said, Peter, this is the gospel that we both believe, that we both proclaim. The Catholic conception of justification was one that brought a kind of a mix of grace and works so that grace in that conception, grace begins justification, but works increase our justification or, in fact, may lose our justification so that the ultimate verdict, the ultimate pronouncement of righteousness by God upon the sinner cannot be made until the final judgment when, after all, all of his life is seen. But the gospel boast is that Jesus Christ, as Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14 says, that Jesus Christ, by a single offering, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the beauty of the gospel, friends. Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And of course, you see from that verse that sanctification is a growth. It is a growth in holiness and in righteousness. It is progressive. But it, but that, that progressive sanctification only identifies those whom Christ has perfected for all time. This is the rooting of sanctification in the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ Jesus and His work alone. Sadly, there is even a Protestant challenge to justification not by works. I suppose that's always been the case, or often been the case, that um, Satan has brought these little challenges along. But in the last 40 years or so, um, a new perspective on Paul has been articulated. Uh, This new perspective has highlighted some true things, maybe even some helpful things in certain ways. But sadly, it has really muddied the waters with regard to the doctrine of justification and the gospel message more broadly. Part of the confusion that it's, is that it's, it's, it's fostering a limiting of the concept of the works of the law. And, and I know that, that this sermon this morning is a little more apologetic, a little more of a defense of the gospel, but that's the nature of the book that we're in. I say part of the problem in this new perspective on Paul's writing is that it limits the idea of the works of the law to refer to only, or at least primarily, the quote-unquote boundary markers of Judaism. The things that mark out someone visibly as, as a Jew, namely circumcision and the food laws, the laws of what you can eat and what you cannot eat. Remember, of course, that those were the very laws that isolated or separated the people of God 
from the Gentiles. So they were, they sort of marked the boundaries visibly of who was a Jew and who was not. So the new perspective on Paul says that Galatians is not primarily about soteriology, that is how to be saved, but is about ecclesiology, is about the unity in the church between Jew and Gentile. The new perspective was convinced that the Judaism of Paul's day wasn't um, legalistic like we think of, like I think we think of uh, many of the Jews that Jesus confronted, the Pharisees who were trusting in themselves and their own goodness, their own righteousness. The new perspective was convinced that Judaism was not a religion of merit or works or self-righteousness, that the Reformers read Galatians through the eyes of their own contemporary debates without grounding it in the first century issues at hand. All of which makes the doctrine of justification, in the words of one of the New Perspective's main proponents, a second-order issue. Let's stop fighting over justification. It's not essential to salvation and the gospel that we understand and articulate the doctrine of justification. Whereas Luther said that justification was the article upon which the church stands or falls. Now thankfully, I think that historic scholarship in the last couple of decades has actually um, brought increased recognition that there were indeed strands of legalism within first century Judaism. I'm very thankful to the men and women who've done those historical, um, done that historical research. In fact, it is true that much of what Paul was writing against, what, what Jesus was dealing with, was a version of the Jewish faith that had really come to view obedience to God's rules as the means by which they would be declared righteous before God. And so when Paul wrote that we are not justified by the works of the law, he had in mind the observance of circumcision or the food laws or the holy days or in fact any other aspect of law-keeping. And and if you look at chapter 3, just look right across the page at verse 10, he brings all of the law together here when he says that all who, this is chapter 3, verse 10, all who rely on, here's our phrase again, the works of the law, he says, are actually under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by what? By all things written in the book of the law to do them. So the sin of the Jews then was not merely a sense of racial superiority. That wasn't the biggest problem in Galatia. There, there was probably some of that going on. But the biggest problem wasn't social. Wasn't merely that they had a, a, a sense of racial superiority. And the reason for that was that, that circumcision was not merely a social marker. It was, in fact, a matter of obedience to God. 
So Paul was, in fact, arguing the gospel, guarding the gospel from those who would teach that a man is justified on the basis of his works, of obedience to God, of his good deeds. That someone could be justified merely by going to church faithfully or reading the Bible or taking communion or giving to charity or, or for any good deeds that he has done. Friends, listen to me. No amount of good deeds and religious rituals will ever justify you before God. This is such a pervasive, perennial problem as, as human beings wrestle with the idea of being right with God. Every, there is within us a sense that we must have something to do with it. That it could not be merely a gift, a free gift from the sovereign grace of God, but it must in the end have something to do with us. Paul's argument is his shared conviction with Peter, of which he reminds him, is that we are sure, we know, we understand that a person will never be justified before God by his obedience, his personal obedience to God's law. The third term that's really important in this conception of the gospel is this. Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through what? Faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that phrase, faith in Jesus Christ, could also be translated faith of Jesus Christ or faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ or of Jesus. And of course, in one sense, that's true. We are saved by the faithfulness of the Savior, by the obedience of Jesus Christ credited to us by virtue of our union with Him. But it's more likely, I think, that this is a reference to faith in Christ as the means or the ground of our justification before God. In other words, our union with Jesus Christ is a faith union because Paul often sets up faith and works as contrasting human activities wrought in someone who is pleasing to God by the work of the Holy Spirit, but human activities nonetheless, faith or works. How can a person be justified before God? Paul's answer is, it's not by doing. If I were to say to you today, right now, what would you say in your, in your heart of hearts? How can you be on what basis are you acceptable to God? The, the first answer that should come to your mind is not, I do, I did, but Christ has done. It, faith is the grounds, the, the, the ground of justification before God, vindication, declaration that you are righteous. Faith is the ground of that because faith points us away from ourselves. 
it points us to the person in whom we have faith, the one in whom we trust. So this means faith is not some kind of new work, new good work then that is substituted in the place of all of the good works that we should have done by no means. We're not saved by mere faith. It's not the faith that God looks at that says that's good. It's the fact that faith is in Christ Jesus. It's it's looking away from ourselves. Faith glorifies Jesus Christ, and that is the way that God has designed salvation to work. Faith is, friends, nothing more and nothing less than clinging to Jesus Christ. Faith is looking away from ourselves, from our own obedience to the obedience of Jesus, looking to His righteousness, looking to His sacrifice as our only hope. That's saving faith. And God in salvation has determined that His Son should get all the glory. He deserves it. He is the only one whose obedience to God was perfect and so pleasing to the Father. He is the only one who fully pleased the Father in every way. And it is right and just and good that salvation should be only by looking away from ourselves to the Son of God who obeyed the Father in every respect. Romans chapter 3 and verse 27, Paul says something similar then. He says, what becomes then, if that's the gospel, then what is what becomes of our boasting? It is what? It is what? It's excluded. If that is the gospel, then there is no, there is literally no room at all in the gospel scheme for any human boasting. It is not of our works. So he said it is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There is no cause for boasting, Paul reminded his readers. There is no cause for boasting in circumcision or in any other keeping of God's law. A Christian's boast is always and ever in the goodness and righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And this is why, friends, this is why we can be justified even in the present. Even now, God can say, you are justified. I declare you righteous. Because while in one sense justification does ultimately point to the final judgment of God when all humanity is is sorted out, nevertheless God pronounces that verdict ahead of time for those who believe in Christ because Jesus Christ's good works are already perfect. They're already complete. They're already done. There's no questioning about them. The verdict can be be given because the work is complete. That work that Christ has done on behalf of all of those who believe in Him. So Paul reminds Peter of the gospel of justification, not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ that they both hold on to. 
And then secondly, Paul reminds Peter of their common belief that the way of salvation is the same for for Jews, for Gentiles alike. Look again at, at the text, beginning of verse 15. And just sort of see this in the in the whole way that he speaks. Uh, verse 15, Paul says, We, Peter, we ourselves, you and I, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also, as Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by works of the law, (laughs) because by the works of the law, no one, Jew or Gentile, will be justified. Being born a Jew did not justify Paul before God or Peter. And friends, being born into a certain family does not make any of you, any of us, right with God. Jesus said in John chapter 1, or John said, that Christ came to His own. He came down to the earth among His own things, and His own people did not receive Him. But then He says, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, in other words, not by natural birth, but born of God, that is, born by spiritual birth. It is these who receive Christ, who believe in His name that God gives the right to become His children. Jesus would go on to say in chapter 3 to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus came to Him, truly, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the visible kingdom of Israel was made up of all of those born naturally, but the visible, but the, but the kingdom of God, I should say, the kingdom of God is made up of all those born again, born spiritually. So Jesus says in verse 6, of that same chapter to Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And I want to ask you, who've been born into a Christian home, I want to put it to you, who've grown up around the church, have you been born again? Have you been born of God? Have you been born of the Spirit? Or to put it another way, have you received Jesus Christ? Have you believed into His name? This is what really matters. It's always what's really mattered. Salvation is in Christ alone. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. And the last thing that Paul does in this text is to kind of hint, I think, at the reasoning behind this conviction. And it's the very end of verse 16. I think it's just a hint. And we'll look at this as he continues to go on in the letter to the Galatians. But he says, all of this is because the works 
by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one, this is, this is just never going to happen. It's never going to be the case. Future tense. No, this, this will never happen from here on out. It will never happen that someone is justified before God by works of the law. Now, I guess you could say in one sense it is theoretically possible to be acquitted by God because a person really is completely innocent and really is perfectly obedient to God's law. But when I, I want to ask you, where is the person like that? And that's what he's getting at. In fact, no one will be that way. Because none of us obeys like that. Every one of, none of us will be justified by works of the law. No one of us keeps the law. All have sinned. Jews and Gentiles, they're all under sin. All have come short of the glory of God. Even our very best obedience is mixed with false motives at times, right? Isn't that not, is that not true? No amount of obedience can make up for past disobedience. Even if you were to say, oh, I'm going to be perfect from this time in my life for the rest of my life, and, and so earn my place in heaven, none of that can make up for your past disobedience. If you did everything that you should do from here on out, as Jesus said, uh, the, the, the servant who did his master's will should at the end of the day say, I did no more and no less than what I was required to do. This is nothing meritorious. There is nothing that, that can overcome my sins and my failures. This is why no one will be justified by the works of the law. This is why you and I, friends, must have the completed righteousness of Jesus Christ. A righteousness that's not our own. A righteousness that comes to us from outside of us, that is given to us as a gift from God that comes through faith in Christ, the perfect righteousness of the Savior Himself. I know I've told this story many times, but I, I've just never... It's my favorite testimony, I think, of the discovery of justification by faith in Christ alone. And it comes from the autobiography of John Bunyan, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners man who struggled for years with assurance of whether he was justified before God. He was up and he was down and he just never had that sense that he was uh, acceptable to God. That he was truly right before God. He had moods that went up and went down. His obedience was in his own view, good on some days and very poor on others. And he writes that one day as I was passing through a field and with some dashes on my conscience, guilt in his conscience, he says, I was fearing lest yet all was not right with God. And suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought, he said, that I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that whatever, wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness. For that righteousness was just before Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was 
Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Friends, that is the hope of the Gospel. Without that, I don't think there is good news. Martin Luther said, Christ, seized by faith and living in the heart, is the true Christian righteousness for which God counts us righteous and gives us eternal life. There, This is no work of the law, but quite a different sort of righteousness. Friends, that's what you and I need. That different sort of righteousness. That righteousness that is Jesus Christ Himself. And if you are plagued with your own sin, if you are hounded by the guilt that would carry you down to hell, my admonition to you this morning is to lift your eyes to look upon Jesus Christ with saving faith. To put your hope and your trust in Him, in His goodness, in His righteousness, in His sacrifice on your behalf, that Jesus paid it all, that His righteousness was complete, that if you have Christ, you have everything. And having Christ, you may be declared and you will be declared righteous before the sight of the Almighty God. Would you pray with me? Contemplate these things together. Heavenly Father, please continue this work in our hearts. And I pray that the soul that is most broken over sin would have an enlivening view of the Savior today. Please, Lord, grant this view, grant this faith, even now, as we wait upon You. In Jesus' name, with heads bowed and eyes closed, let's continue to meditate, reflect, and to pray.